Welcome to Transforming Energy, the NREL podcast, brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy's National Renewable Energy Laboratory. We're highlighting the latest in clean energy research and innovations happening at the lab. It's Wednesday, November 1st, November 1st, Taylor. Mm-hmm. I'm Karen Jerriman. I'm Taylor Mankel. Taylor, you look a little different since our last episode. <laughs> you have that marriage glow. Oh, all the smiles. Thank you so much. I think it suits me well. I think, I think it suits it me well. Getting used to the ring and everything. Good yeah. for you. You haven't lost it yet? Not yet. That's Not good. yet. That's mm-hmm. good. Yeah, don't do that. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been a really exciting week. Of course, Halloween went by. Did you go as anything special? Oh, nothing crazy. Nothing crazy. A couple different costumes for different parties. I feel like that's almost required these days, having your options open for Halloween. Yeah, we're in Colorado and the weather can change like right. in an instant, as with many places. So I, too, had multiple outfits. Uh, today I'm rocking the sweater weather. Sweater weather outfit, yeah. All right, so let's dive in today. Uh, we've got four stories to cover in today's episode. Let's do it. All right, Taylor, are you ready to unleash the grid edge? Yes, I am. I'm also ready for that tagline to be used in the next epic spy movie. Yeah, I did my best movie voice there. Um, And the secret weapon everyone is after in this movie, apparently, is none other than NREL's Advanced Distribution Management System Testbed. Yes, I've got my tickets pre-ordered, my popcorn bucket at the ready, But back to reality, the Advanced Distribution Management System, or ADMS, testbed is a real blockbuster-sized asset. Renewable energy is shaping the power system, especially at the end of the distribution line, also known as the grid edge. The grid edge. Mm -hmm. We've (laughs) talked about the grid edge in previous episodes, but a refresher on what that means. The grid edge is the point where we connect to the network, or where electricity reaches our homes and businesses. And now, as customers are adding rooftop solar, electric vehicles, and other devices onto the grid, the ADMS testbed will help utilities answer important questions. Right. Questions like how dozens of electric vehicles charging simultaneously from one building might impact grid performance, or how extra power from a rooftop solar panel could be shared with nearby homes. Exactly. And it helps answer these questions by providing utilities with everything they need to model and evaluate their desired distribution systems. Think of it like a sandbox for researchers and utilities to play in before making any adjustments to the actual grid. Things like grid simulators, renewable energy generators, megawatt-scale distribution equipment, and electric system experts, all of these together allow utilities and grid management software vendors to test and validate big investments and products. These could be things like private communication networks for utility devices or residential buildings that provide energy services. And with the build-out of NREL's Advanced Research on Integrated Energy Systems Platform... Hold on, there's an acronym for that, we know that. Aries, we've heard this one before. Absolutely. And with Aries, testbed users have access to 20 megawatts of hardware, including solar panels, hydrogen electrolyzers, and battery energy systems. Plus, NREL's cyber range can be integrated so users can also track potential for cyber attacks. All of which allow for closer-to-reality experiments, so utilities and partners can test things in a controlled environment, at scale, risk-free, before the system is ever developed. And while we might have jokingly called the ADMS testbed a secret weapon, it's actually not the case. The door is always open for new projects, for utilities, and for NREL partners to leverage its capabilities. 
The laboratory also recently reopened applications for users to propose testbed projects. The testbed user call is seeking proposals from utilities, cooperatives, energy technologies companies, and any other research partner seeking to address the challenges of integrating more electric vehicles and the electricity they require into the power system. Applications are open at nrel.gov slash ARIES, that's A-R-I-E-S, until December 1st. For our next story, let's dive into the wonderful world of wave energy. Ooh, sounds magical. Take it away, my water power friend. <laughs> now, if someone inquires about the cost comparison of a semi-taut spread or a catenary weight float, hmm. don't worry. You haven't accidentally <laughs> walked into a Sphinx's riddle. I think I did. <laughs> You've probably just found yourself in the middle of the U.S. Department of Energy's Water Power Technologies Office-funded study on mooring systems. Gotcha. Okay, I'm not sure about those other things you mentioned, <laughs> but I know a bit about mooring systems. Those keep ships, buoys, and other floating objects from drifting away in the waves. They're important for keeping devices where you want them and prevent them from bumping into anything. And this study's goal was to find the most cost-effective way to acquire mooring systems for a new wave energy test site off the coast of Oregon. Exactly right. The site called the PacWave South Test Site, plans to open to wave energy technology developers in 2025. They'll be able to test wave energy converter prototypes in actual ocean waves, an essential step to determining whether devices that turn ocean waves into electricity can weather our active ocean conditions. Very cool. So here's the big issue that this study is trying to solve. No two wave energy converters are the same. So that means no single mooring system can serve all the prototypes at the test site. Exactly. Each company, in theory, could just buy its own mooring system, but that would be expensive and inefficient. Why spend all that money just for one test? Steinhauser and Sanu Cernivas are two researchers at NREL who set out, along with colleagues at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, which is located in Washington state, to determine what kind of generic mooring system could get the job done at the most cost-effective price. They were able to narrow it from 43 mooring designs to a solution that included one mooring system for each of the four anchoring areas at the PacWave South site. And now it's up to the Water Power Technologies Office and PacWave to decide how to proceed with Hausner's and Cernivas' recommendations. Okay, but Taylor, I'm still wondering what the semi-taut <laughs> spread and catenary weight floats are. Yeah, we had to get back to that. It's <laughs> it's pure gibberish. No, no, just, just kidding, just kidding. They are actually types of mooring systems. Ah. The catenary system is a relatively slack mooring that uses the weight of the line, typically made of chain, to control movement. And a semi-taut spread system is a combination of mooring lines that use the line's weight and elasticity to control movement. These lines are typically made of chain near the anchor and synthetic rope near the device. And in case you're wondering, the semi-taut spread is cheap. Okay, I think I follow along. You've taught me a little something there. But you know what? I still think a semi-taut spread is just something that sounds delicious on toast. And I'm going <laughs> to leave it at that. But let's move forward. So NREL collaborates with a lot of other organizations and companies, but there's a new collaboration that is particularly exciting because it's focused on lithium-ion battery recycling. The batteries that give electric vehicles life. Currently, the most eco-friendly battery designs are also the least profitable to recycle. It's a tough and important problem. Yes. 
But a new collaboration between NREL and ACE Green Recycling is working to develop and optimize recycling techniques that will bridge the gap between sustainability and profitability for lithium iron phosphate, or LFP batteries as they're called. Historically, automakers favored NMC, or lithium nickel manganese cobalt oxide batteries. Say that one three times fast, why don't you? (laughs) We'll just go with NMC batteries. These NMC batteries use expensive and supply-constrained critical materials like cobalt, nickel, and lithium that, of course, no secret, have caused concerns about availability, ethical sourcing, and cost. Right now, we can't mine enough nickel, cobalt, manganese for all the batteries uh, that are anticipated to have in the future. Um, So we need to look at all sources um, of those transition metals. And so what we're doing is we're looking at um, getting batteries, recycling them, and then recovering those transition metals so that they can be utilized in future uh, lithium chemistries. That was Matt Kaiser, the Electrochemical Energy Storage Group Manager at NREL. As Kaiser said, the demand for battery materials is just too much to keep up with. Now many automakers have recently switched to LFP batteries, which don't contain cobalt or nickel. This has marked a huge shift. In 2020, LFP batteries made up only 6% of the lithium-ion battery market. But in 2022, that number jumped to 27%. Wow, what a jump. Unfortunately, that shift also creates challenges for battery recyclers. Different battery types have different recycling needs, and combining these technologies into the same recycling stream can cause issues. Uh, Recycling of lithium-ion batteries is fairly difficult, and the primary reason is is because there's not one lithium battery. I think there is a concept out there that there is just one lithium battery, but that's not true. Um, The battery in a cell phone is lithium cobalt oxide versus graphite. The batteries in advanced vehicles is nickel cobalt manganese oxide versus a graphite. So there's a lot of different battery uh, technologies out there. And because of that, um, when you take a battery and you put it into a recycling stream, you're gonna be mixing all those different battery technologies together. And that actually is gonna cause contamination. So, that's not good, <laughs> and that makes it difficult to be able to recycle batteries of the future. That definitely sounds like a challenge. Also, because recyclers target high-value critical materials like cobalt and nickel for extraction, lithium iron phosphate, again, that's LFP, those batteries are less likely to be recycled than the NMC batteries. Together, NREL and ACE hope to demonstrate economic recycling methods for materials in LFP batteries. NREL will use its capabilities in cell production, modeling, and analysis to assist ACE in evaluating commercialization of their proprietary LFP recycling technology, all to maximize performance and lifetime requirements of these batteries. Okay, our final story this episode, you might need a little popcorn and some water for this one because it is heavy, but it's really interesting stuff. We focus on energy storage, specifically energy storage with more than four hours. Mm. Energy storage is just as it sounds, storing energy for later use, like storing power generated by solar panels to use when the sun is not shining. Now, why study storage that is longer than four hours, you might ask? Yeah, that is a very exact number of hours. But the reason is that more than 90% of lithium-ion batteries deployed in the U.S. in recent years have been for four hours. 
That's because it works well for hot summer days when peak demand is shorter and there's lots of solar energy to supplement demand. Markets even incentivize four-hour storage. That means if you have a six-hour battery, you don't bring in any more revenue than a four-hour battery. So there's really no incentive. You might be wondering why we even care about longer-duration storage. Well, the thing is that there's a lot of value for the power grid in storage with more than four hours. NREL worked on a multi-year study called the Storage Futures Study that looked at the role of energy storage in a resilient, flexible, and low-carbon U.S. power grid through the year 2050. The study found there is potential for hundreds of gigawatts of storage with at least six hours, mostly because it can help integrate lots of wind and solar onto the grid. In a new report, NREL returned to the Storage Futures study to dig into the question of how we go from storage being a minor player in today's energy landscape to the major league of future energy systems. Enrol mm-hmm. found the value of four-hour-plus storage could increase because of, drumroll, winter demand. Ah. As extreme weather conditions increase and we electrify more building heating systems, peak demand is becoming more significant in winter than in summer. And demand peaks in winter also tend to be longer, like at night when solar-powered energy isn't available. Makes sense. As we continue to rely more and more on solar for power, the shift to net winter peaks will speed up in most of the country. It's already happening in multiple regions like the southeast and Texas. And this transition only makes longer duration storage development more necessary to help keep the lights on all winter long. I want to mention an interesting connection here because we were talking about lithium-ion batteries. According to Paul Denholm, who's a senior research fellow at NREL, other storage technologies that can meet winter demand peaks could compete with lithium-ion technology in terms of cost and service lifetimes. So lithium-ion may not always be that dominant player. Oh, that is interesting. New players coming in here. It all comes down to grid reliability, really, and greater storage is what will get us there. Before we go, we wanted to quickly recognize NREL's Phil Perilla, who joined NREL in 1990 and has worked in the hydrogen storage group for more than 20 years. Perilla was just named a fellow of the American Physical Society. Congratulations. That is a super big deal. The 124-year-old organization honored Perilla for, and I'll just quote them here, his, quote, outstanding contributions to hydrogen absorption science for contributions to the physics and advanced materials characterization of new energy-related materials and for exemplary leadership and mentorship. What an honor. Very few American Physical Society members are named fellows. No more than half of a percent of its members annually. But Perilla is in good company. He's joining 10 other NREL researchers who have been named fellows in the past. Congratulations, Phil. It's amazing. And thanks, everyone, for joining us for yet another episode of Transforming Energy, the NREL podcast. Made it to November. We'll be back in two weeks with more news from NREL. This episode was adapted from NREL articles from October 2023, authored by Connor O'Neill, Justin Doherty, Madeline Giocaris, Rebecca Martineau, Caitlin McDermott-Murphy, and Wayne Hicks. Our theme music is written and performed by Ted Vaca, and episode music by Chuck Kernick, Jim Riley, and Mark Sanseverino of Drift BC. 
This podcast is produced by NREL's communications office and recorded at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Colorado. We express our gratitude and acknowledge that the land we are on is the traditional and ancestral homes of the Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Ute peoples. We recognize and pay respect to the indigenous peoples from our past, present, and future, and are grateful to those who have been and continue to be stewards of this land.